listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. this morning is family worship. If you are a kid, uh, elementary age or younger, if you can make your way down here, I'm going to read a story uh, for us, uh, just for the kids. Y'all come on down. That includes mine. Uh, Two other graduates that were not recognized this morning uh, were Chris Brown, who was just up here. Let's hear it for Chris Brown. He just graduated with a degree, with a master's degree in Christian something, Uh, the same degree that I have. I don't even know what it is, Uh, but it's in Jesus. And so he just graduated with that. Uh, We plowed through some of those Greek and Hebrew classes together over the past couple of years, Uh, but also Caleb Land. uh, He graduated with some sort of education degree. Um, I did not forget my notes down here. I actually don't have any. So uh, Caleb's not here this morning. His life group is out camping together. So make sure you give him a high five. Uh, Chris's plan is to uh, keep his job here at South Point, hopefully, for the many years to come, uh, because I enjoy working with him. And Caleb's plan is to also stay here at South Point, but also pursue a doctorate degree in some sort of educational leadership. So um, yeah, Chris wasn't going to get off the hook that easily. So all right, here we go. I'm going to read this story. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite books. I gave it away. There was a guy this week working on my house, and uh, he said he said he has a uh, he had a four year old and a seven year old at home, and he was looking for some sort of um, storybook for them. And I said I've got just what you need. And so Amazon did next day it was there, and he told me the next day he said I went home and started reading that with my kids. It was great. So um, anyway, I love this book. Um, give it away as much as possible. All right, y'all ready? We're gonna listen, okay? The man who didn't have any friends, which means none. There was once a man who didn't have any friends. None. Do y'all have any friends? Yeah. Probably, yeah. At least you have family. Well, of course you do, but not Zacchaeus. Can you say Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus. Can y'all say Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus. I'll be falling asleep on me already. Poor Zacchaeus didn't have any. You're probably wondering why. Was it because he was so short? No, that's not a reason not to like someone. Was it because he had a name that was hard to say? Well, neither is that. Even though he was short and he did have a funny name, that wasn't it. No, people didn't like Zacchaeus because he stole their money. Zacchaeus collected taxes. Taxes were what people had to pay the king. But Zacchaeus took more than he was supposed to and kept the extra money for himself and made himself rich. Everyone knew what he was up to, and it made them cross and grumpy. They didn't like Zacchaeus one bit. So they made sure he knew it by doing things like avoiding him and walking on the opposite side of the street and pretending not to see him and whispering things like, there's that nobody who thinks he's a somebody loud enough so he could hear. Anyway, one day, a huge crowd gathered by the road. Jesus was coming to their town, and everyone wanted to see him. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus too, but everyone was too tall. He tried jumping up and down, but that didn't work. He couldn't see a thing. Luckily, Zacchaeus had a good idea. I'll climb that sycamore tree, he said. So he did. He was surprisingly good at climbing trees for a man who was so unusually sure that he had to take a flying leap just to get into his chair in the morning. From the tree, Zacchaeus had the perfect view all the way down the road. Another minute, and suddenly Jesus was at the tree. He stopped and looked up. Zacchaeus saw Jesus, and Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Jesus said, I'd like to come over to your house. Zacchaeus almost fell out of the tree. Come over to his house? No one ever wanted to come anywhere near his house, let alone inside of it. The people saw this, and needless to say, it made them even crosser and grumpier than usual. They mumbled and murmured and muttered, Why is Jesus being so kind to that big sinner? Doesn't Jesus know about him? Zacchaeus scrambled down and took Jesus to his house. He was in a big hurry because he didn't want Jesus to change his mind. 
Perhaps Jesus hadn't heard about him. Perhaps Jesus didn't know about how he had been stealing and how no one liked him and how he didn't have any friends. But Jesus knew. He knew all about Zacchaeus and the stealing and everything, and he still loved him. Zacchaeus was ashamed. Lord, he said, turning pale, what I've done is wrong. But now I want to do the right thing. I will give the money back to everyone. Four times what I stole. I know. And that's just what he did. Jesus smiled. My friend, he said, today God has rescued you. Jesus loved Zacchaeus when nobody else did. He was Zacchaeus' friend even when no one else was. Because Jesus was showing people what God's love was like. His wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The end. The end. All right, let's give these kids a hand for making it through the story of Zacchaeus. So we're in the book of Luke uh, again this morning, like Chris said. Here's the question I want to begin with, though, this morning. Uh, two questions. The first one is this. First, how are you coming into this morning? B because for many of us, school is over. We're looking forward to the summer. Uh, maybe you're at that point in the year when you've run out of money. Um, maybe you're at the point of the year when you're trying to make plans for the fall. You're in between jobs. You're trying to figure out what comes up next. Your marriage may be on the rocks. You may be pregnant or wishing you could be pregnant, or maybe you have family issues, whatever that is. Maybe there's a personal struggle that's happening inside of you. I want you to just think about that for a moment. How are you coming into this morning? And the second question I want you to answer this morning is what might God want to tell you about himself? So as we open the word and look at these scriptures, those are the two questions I want to, uh, to pose to you. And we're going to take just a moment. We're going to pray, and we're going to just tell God what we're, what we're feeling. He already knows he's there, but I want us to, to utter those things so we know this is where I am. And then I want us to ask God what he may want to reveal about himself to us this morning so that we can make the most use of our time, not in a utilitarian kind of way, uh, but in a way so that we can be responsive and humbled to his word. So if you just take just a minute, um, if you want to close your eyes, that's fine. Um, but I want us to, to ask the Lord to reveal himself to us this morning in the midst of our situation and through his words. So let's do that. Amen. Psalm chapter 119, it says this uh, in verse 18. I want you to repeat these words after me. May this be our corporate prayer this morning. Open my eyes that I might receive God's wonderful word to me. Amen. Like we just read, we'll be finishing up Luke chapter 18, moving into uh, the first 27 verses of Luke 19. So go there with me if you would. We already read this passage, and the first thing that we see here, we see Jesus doing three things, the first of which is that Jesus heals the blind. Jesus heals the blind. So we picked up right there in chapter 18, beginning in verse number 35, if you're taking notes. Now, just for a minute, I want you to close your eyes. You're like, man, how many times we got to open our eyes, close our eyes, write all these different things? Just close your eyes for a minute. Keep your eyes closed. Close your eyes. Close them tight. No peeking. Some of y'all are like, I don't trust people when they tell me to close my eyes. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to throw anything at you. So if you have your eyes closed, if you're sitting there on your couch in your living room, if you're watching online or um, in your camping chair, whatever, you can do this too. So close your eyes. Imagine if tomorrow morning you woke up and this was your life. You can't see a thing. All of a sudden, you, you don't even know how to find your clothes. You don't know how to find the refrigerator. You, you forget what things may look like, different colors. 
You begin to panic. What do I do? You're probably going to lose your job because for most of us, it requires seeing. You're going to lose, for some of us, your family, for your friends. All of a sudden, life is completely different. And we begin here in this first section with a guy who's blind. You can open your eyes. That was his entire life, not just for a few moments. That was probably 45, 60 seconds, but for days, weeks, months, for years. That was his entire life. He had been blind. So we see here as Jesus drew near to Jericho. Now we're right here approaching the last week and a half of Jesus' life. Next week, we're going to get into the triumphal entry, which is then the last week of Jesus' life before he's put on the cross. And so here he's going up to Jericho, and there's a blind man who is sitting by the roadside begging. We know from the passage in Mark that this man's name was Bartimaeus. Everybody say Bartimaeus. So we're going to call this guy Bart. So we have here blind Bart. He's sitting on the side of the road begging because in this time they don't have social security. uh, They don't have an unemployment insurance. There's nothing that he can do. So he finds a really opportune time and place to begin begging because he knew that the Passover was coming up, right? The triumphal entry, looking at the Passover, the crucifixion, that's coming up. And so this blind man goes and sits by the side of the road when religious people, the most religious people in the world are going to be going through Jericho into Jerusalem. And he's asking them, please spare some money for the poor. So he's got a really good spot, hoping to make some money that day. Verse 36, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Obviously, he can't see them. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, he's not just picking one of the random words or titles for Jesus. He picks this one intentionally. Because when someone cried out, son of David, it's a means of expressing the Messiah has come. He's, he's expressing his faith in Jesus. So at some point, he knew who Jesus was because they said Jesus of Nazareth, and he was familiar with that. So he said, I've got faith that this guy is the Messiah. God's long-awaited king has arrived. Today, he's making his way in. Verse number 39, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He didn't do that. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 40, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him this question, 41, what do you want me to do for you? The man responded, blind Bart says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Notice here, the contrast between Jesus and the crowds. The crowds say, be quiet. And it says those, those who are in front of him. So obviously this guy is behind a crowd. Jesus is, is going through town with probably tens of thousands of people. That's what history tells us. It's loud. It's boisterous. And this man back here, blind bar sitting on the side of the road, hoping somebody's going to hand him some money. Now we know the Pharisees are very much anti-Jesus. But now we see the crowds. They're very easily influenced because here, they're, they're like, oh, the Pharisees, uh, they don't like Jesus? Okay, well, we're not going to like Jesus either. We don't like Jesus' work. We don't like the kingdom. But then in a couple of days, they're going to say, oh, yeah, Jesus is here. Pray, let's put some palm branches on the road. Thank you, Jesus. And then a few days later, what happens? Give us Barabbas. We don't even like Jesus anymore. So we see here these crowds are like sheep just being led wherever uh, the next feeding trough is. And so the Pharisees are here saying, no, no, we don't like the work of Jesus. And so the crowds are like, yeah, yeah, make these blind men stop. We're looking for a king who's going to bring power and might and authority. He's not here for the blind folks. But what does Jesus do? Jesus stops. He hears blind Bartimaeus all through the crowd. It's noisy, animals, people. And he says, wait, I hear this guy calling out, son of David, have mercy on me. He says, bring this man to me. Now, in verse 41, he says, what do you mean to do for you? Seems a little obtuse. Am I right? It's like, uh, well, duh. <laughs> Jesus, uh, can you help me to see? Like, that'd be for starters. Help, help me get my sight back. But the reason Jesus asks him, hey, what do you need? It's because he wants to draw that out of him. Because all around, it's not just Jesus and this man standing there alone. He's surrounded by the crowd. And Jesus wants the crowd to hear, this man has faith in me that I can do this. 
He wants to hear the man's desperation and heart that it's only Christ who can heal. So he says, what do you want from me? Of anything, what can I provide for you? Now, if Jesus were to ask you that same question, if he were to come to you and say, what's the one thing that I can give you? What's the one thing that I can do for you? If he showed up this morning and asked you that question, how would you respond? In all honesty, how would you respond? Jesus walks in. Come on in, Jesus. We actually have him right here this morning, okay? Jesus is walking in. Uh, those who have faith to see, you know, give us. So, uh, but if Jesus walks in and he says, what's the one thing you want? How would you respond to that question? Would it be for a better job? Would it be for a bigger house? Would it be for a wife? Would it be for a better wife? Would it be uh, for kids? Or would it be for healing? Or would it be for satisfaction? Or would it be for greater pleasure in this world? Would it be for more money? Would it be for greater clarity? What would be your most desperate need? Or would it be like this man who cries out to Jesus, son of David, he's expressing faith in him. He's saying, have mercy on me. In other words, he's saying, cover me in your righteousness. He's saying, give me saving faith. And then he says, now that I've, I've confessed that I have faith in you, you're the son of David. Now, if you would please heal my sight. But what's the one thing that we need most? Is it something physically tangible in this world that we can see that would make our lives better? If Jesus were to ask us, because as I look around, there aren't very many things that we really need, especially compared to this guy who, hasn't, who couldn't see at all. Yet how often do we go to Christ and say, Jesus, I just have one more request of you. Could you just give me this and then I'll be done? What would you say to him? Would you cry out for mercy? Because notice what Jesus' response is in verse number 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight your faith has made you well. And we've seen this already in this chapter. And we saw it in chapter 17. Literally, the translation there is not so much in the sense that it has made you well physically. Literally, that phrase right there, it means, for your faith has saved you. Your faith has rescued you. Your faith has redeemed your soul. So Jesus says, I'm here for the soul. My kingdom is one that's going to look physically pure. It's going to look like healing, but primarily my kingdom is one that is going to save your soul. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Now, in verse number 43, we see the obvious response to Christ. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. So we see here that this man, blind bar, recovers his sight and immediately begins following Jesus. History actually tells us that Bart followed Jesus for the next week all the way to the cross, and then after his ascension, blind Bartimaeus was there with him, kind of hanging out with the disciples, hanging out with those who professed faith in Jesus, and then blind Bart became a street pe preacher until he died. So it's interesting, it's not just he followed him for a few minutes, then he was done. He followed him for the rest of his life. But the crowds here, they celebrate. They celebrate what Christ has done because of a physical healing. We're going to see in a second, they don't celebrate so much the spiritual healing. So we pick them in chapter 19. Not only does Jesus heal the blind, but secondly, we see that Jesus saves the lost. We all know the song. Hopefully, uh, if you grew up in any sort of church, we can sing this together if you like. Zacchaeus was a... And a... Was he... Yep. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see... And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. Now, you got to do this hand for me. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come. There we go. For I'm going to your house today. Boom, boom. Okay, so we all know this. We all know the story of this. That's what we get right here at the beginning of chapter 9. Y'all sounded pretty decent. Uh, we see here in verse number 1, he entered Jericho. So he's, he's still going through, and he was passing through Jericho. He's going to Jerusalem. Verse number 2, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. Everybody say Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a bad dude. He robbed folks of their retirement, of their college fund, of their ability to feed their kids. He was a chief tax collector. Not just a tax collector who was a bad guy. This was a chief tax collector. He was the worst of the worst. He's there in Jericho, a really big city. He had robbed folks of tons of money. He was probably infamous 
in this day. He lived lavishly. He had a really nice lifestyle because of stealing from others so he could provide for himself. Ironically enough, his name means the righteous one. But he wasn't living up to what his name meant. So that's Zacchaeus. Verse number three. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. We don't really know why. It doesn't say why. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Poor guy. Verse number four. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree, which is similar to a fig tree, so that he could see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, uh, Jericho had lush vegetation. It was one of the few cities there in this time, mostly a desert uh, culture that actually had vegetation. And so they had these big, lush green trees all around. I, I was trying to figure out, uh, draw a mental picture for y'all. It's kind of like if Danny DeVito were climbing up to a small tree. That's how I picture uh, Zacchaeus. I can't back that up biblically, but that's the picture we have. It's the end of the video climbing up into this tree. Then he says in verse number five, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. That's what Jesus says to him. How does Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? Again, we don't know. It may have been that Zacchaeus was just so notorious for being a bad guy, for being a thief, for being a chief tax collector. But either way, friends, from the foundations of the world, according to Psalm chapter 139, Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name because he had formed him even when he was in his mother's womb. And so when Jesus speaks Zacchaeus' name to him, it wasn't like this was a novel interaction with him because Zacchaeus was created in the image of God. And Jesus speaks to him personally. He invites him. He says, I want to be with you. I want to eat with you. It doesn't matter if you walked here this morning or if you uh, drove up in a Mercedes Benz. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white or you're white or, uh, or you're old or you're young. It doesn't matter uh, if you are the best of the best, the most religious person, or if you are the worst of the worst. Jesus wants to be with you. He created you in his image to spend all of eternity with him. And in the same way that Jesus called Zacchaeus, he wants to call you by name. He knows you. He loves you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Notice what he said right here. He, uh, in verse number five, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. There was a divine appointment for Jesus to stay at the house of Zacchaeus. Jesus knew all about Zacchaeus. He had created him. He knew all things. And he says, still, I'm going to pursue a relationship with Zacchaeus. Verse number seven. Now notice, when they saw, when the crowd saw it, they grumbled. These most religious people. They're grumbling because the kingdom of God is coming to be in the midst of them. They don't see it. And even when they do see it, when they experience it, ah, uh, why did Jesus come to help those who are already rich? Where do we go? They grumbled. Verse number seven. And the crowd said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Here's what religious people say. Of course Jesus would love me. Look at how good I am. Look at how much I have to offer. Look at how obedient I have been. I haven't been like these other folks. Of course he would love me. But he's not going to love somebody like that. He's not going to love that person. They look like that. They act like that. They enjoy those kinds of things. That's their theology. Jesus couldn't love somebody like that. They grumble because of their pride, because of their self-righteousness. And just like we saw in verse number 39 up above, those who were in front of blind bar, they rebuked him, saying, you be quiet. Here, the crowd's like, man, why does he want to go to be with a sinner? The crowds want salvation for themselves. They want power and prestige. They want the kingdom to come for them. And sometimes like some of us, we want salvation for ourselves, but we don't want salvation for everyone. We want salvation for us, and we're good with that. We think that this salvation road is like a cul-de-sac, and as long as it gets to me, boom, it's done. But friend, can I tell you that it is not? It is not. 
And sometimes those who are furthest from Jesus are the exact ones that Jesus came to save. That's what the book of Luke would say. Luke talks twice as much about those who are poor, those who are marginalized, those who are needy, twice as much as any of the other gospels. And I would even plead with you this morning, I know it's not as easy for me, uh, especially depending on, on where I shop or which part of town I'm in or even which city I'm in, I can say, man, this is, these people are way different than me because I judge them based on the cover just like that. But can I encourage you this morning? Don't timestamp people. Don't timestamp people. Because here's what happened to Zacchaeus. Again, we can't back this up scripturally, but we can from some really close church fathers. History would tell us that Zacchaeus became a bishop there in the churches around Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, a bishop was a pastor of pastors. So Zacchaeus was transformed. He was saved. He began to lead churches and lead their leaders. History would actually tell us that Zacchaeus changed his name to Matthias. And if you remember, that became one of Jesus' disciples once Jesus was resurrected back from the dead and Judas had gone on. I know this is family worship. So Judas was done, uh, and so they needed a 12th disciple, and history would say that it may just as well have been Zacchaeus. So don't judge someone based on who they are, but extend the love of Christ to them. Extend hope, knowing that the power of Jesus is sufficient it's both sufficient for you and it is sufficient for someone else. So extend life to them rather than judgment. Verse number eight. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, I think it's interesting that he, you know, Luke says he stood because maybe you couldn't really tell that he was standing because he was so short. Uh, he stood, he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, notice the transformation that happens here in Zacchaeus' life. Notice this is not uh, first Zacchaeus gives the things to the Lord in order to earn God's favor. That's not what happens first. First, Jesus comes to him and says, I want to be with you. I want you to have my presence. Then Zacchaeus says, I'm going to take half of my stuff. And Zacchaeus was loaded. He gives half of it to the poor, and then not only that, and if I have defrauded anyone of, of anything, which would have been almost everybody, because he was good at that, I restore it fourfold. Now, the Old Testament law, uh, if you were to steal from someone, says to restore what you took for, from them plus 20%. Zach is going way over the top here. At this point, Zacchaeus would have been broke. In fact, I really imagine it's hard for him to give half of his stuff to the poor, and then out of the other half to extend fourfold to the folks that he had defrauded. Either way, I imagine Zacchaeus has given up everything in response to having faith in Jesus. This would be the same thing. Uh, some of y'all, maybe, uh, maybe, you, maybe you drive a Dodge, okay? Not my favorite vehicle in the world. Maybe you drive a Dodge Caravan. I don't know. Uh, uh, so uh, if you do, it'd be like if somebody borrowed your Dodge Caravan for a weekend and they drove it around. I'm saying that because Chris drives one, and we always compare vehicles. Um, it's always really fun. Uh, but let's say somebody, let's say I were to borrow Chris's Dodge Caravan. I, I just need it for a weekend, man. I borrow it, and uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian. And so I drive it around. He's like, uh, about a week goes by. Hey, man, can I have that? Can I have my vehicle back? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll get it to you. Well, and next thing I know, I'm like, man, I need some money. And I bet I could sell this for a couple hundred dollars. So I go and I sell his Dodge Caravan. He calls me up a couple of weeks later. Hey, man, can, can, I have, can I get my, my van back? I don't have it, man. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. And Chris would say, whoa, whoa, you defrauded me. You, you took what was mine. And you, you stole it from me. I say, yeah, it stinks, man. But then I become a Christian and I take and I go get, if, if, does BMW make a minivan? I don't know, probably not. They're way too cool for that. Uh, but if, if BMW made a minivan, I go and get a BMW minivan and I replace Chris's Dodge Caravan with that BMW minivan. I say, this is yours. You're being restored at least fourfold. Here you go. That's what's happening here in the story of Zacchaeus. Even when it seems like, man, this person can't. No way. No way that person is going to change. No way that that the power of God is going to impact them to that degree, Jesus says, oh, yes, it will. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus, by the way, doesn't say, hey, take and, uh, he doesn't say go and 
compensate everyone four times. Zacchaeus does it because this man now has a generous heart. Jesus said to him in verse number nine, today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come to this house. I think Jesus here is speaking in um, a couple of different ways. One, Jesus is saying, I am salvation. The kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of God has showed up at your house, has shown up at your house today. It's here. But secondly, salvation has been experienced by you, Zacchaeus, because it's evident in your life. And notice what he says. Uh, Since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, if you compare that, if you look back at verse number 38, Jesus stopped and commanded him, uh, or sorry, verse 38, blind Bart cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Here he says, Zacchaeus, you're a son of Abraham. He's saying, The identity that you hold most is not how much money you have. The identity that you have held forever has been part of the family of God, the people of God. And Jesus is saying, now you are brought back into the family. You are recognized as a citizen, not just of Abraham, but of the family and the kingdom of God. You have been restored, even if the crowds don't recognize it. And it's because Zacchaeus received him joyfully. He received him joyfully, and he is restored into the kingdom of Jesus. The last verse that we see here about Zacchaeus, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I'm directionally challenged. So I, I can pick on different folks for different things, um, but the one thing that everyone has over me is their ability to find anything in the world. Uh, I, when it comes to directions, there's a, there's a decent chance today uh, when I leave, I'll type in Google Maps my address. Like, there's, like it's, it's there. And I come here multiple times a week. You're like, are, are you kidding? I'm like, ah, I don't know. Don't put it past me, all right? Uh, but lostness is what we're talking about here. Lostness disorients us. It means we can't, get, we can't get to where we need to go. We can't get there. If you're lost, you're like, man, I'm just driving. You ever just driven around in circles? I remember back in the day, I used to drive around the McDonough Square, not knowing which way was which. No joke. We were at uh, the Dranium Festival last weekend, and, uh, and I had parked at Chris's house, and we're, we're about to leave, and I was like, uh, I think it's that way. Axel said, I don't think so, Dad. He's 11, without an iPhone and GPS on it. He said, I think it's the other way. I was like, "Uh, you're probably right, Axel. Let's try it that way. I plug it in my phone, and it's like in between. I'm like, I don't, now I'm really confused. Chris, I said, Chris, hey, we're going to head back to your house. We're going to follow you. Uh, You know, like, which way is it? And it was the complete opposite. Like, it was somewhere else. I had no idea where his house is. I would still be walking around McDonough today looking for his house because I was so lost. I needed someone to step in and say, no, no, here's the way. Jesus says, for the Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It would have been impossible. And guess what? My pride as a man does not allow me, and maybe even yours, does not allow you to ask for directions. And many of us are just wandering around lost. So we see these two scenes right here, the end of chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 19. This physical healing and this miracle of blind Bart leads to the crowds rejoicing. They rejoice. They're like, man, look at Jesus. Look at this physical healing. And then here we have a spiritual healing and miracle from Zacchaeus. And what do the crowds do? They grumble. They murmur. Jesus, why would you want to heal a sinner? Friend, if you think that you deserve God's love, you will not receive it. If you think that you deserve God's love, you will not receive it. Jesus' words, not mine. The love of Christ is reserved for those who recognize their desperate need of him. And what we've seen all throughout chapter 18 into chapter 19 is it is impossible, it is impossible to experience God's love and to walk away unchanged. We've seen seen here the surprising nature of the kingdom. He says, be like the persistent widow. He says, be like blind Bartimaeus, cry out to me, like Zacchaeus to welcome me with joy. That's not a kingdom like ours. We want to celebrate those who have money, those who have prestige, those who have power. And I would ask you, what is the must in your life? 
So if we were to ask Jesus, here's Jesus, here's what I need, what's the number one thing you put on your list, on your wish list? But if I said, what is your, where is your life going? What is the one thing that you must do with your life? Is it going to be like Jesus? We must engage others with the love of Christ? Or is it, I must go on vacation this year? Is it, I must get my kids into a good school? Is it, I'm, I must encourage my wife to do this? I must have a husband who fulfills me in this way. What is the greatest must that you have in your life? Because we saw it last week, right there in the middle of chapter 18. Jesus tells them his mission is going to cost him his life. His mission is going to cost him his life. That mission should compel us to love the lost. That's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. Then we get to this third story here in verse number 11 of chapter 19. And we see that Jesus rewards the faithful. He rewards the faithful. Verse number 11, they heard these things. He proceeded to tell a parable. And here's why, which is really nice. Just like last week, here's why the parable is here. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They thought it was going to be here. And he's like, ah, not so much. Verse, uh, verse number 12. And he said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Real quick, the context of this would understand this story uh, because when Jesus was but a wee lad, Herod the Great, who tried to kill him, he gave his empire over to his four sons, and one of those sons, this exact story happened with this area in Jerusalem. So if you want to look that up, you can. Just know that these people would be familiar with this context, with this scenario. Verse 13, and calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10, we can either say minas or minas, the actual Greek translation of that word is minas. Everybody say minas. So, all right, so whether you get it, plus or minus, we're not going to judge on a, we'll, we'll judge on a curve. So whatever I say, minas or minas or minas, that's how we say it. So he gave to each of his servants uh, um, a mina, which is about three months wages. So in our context, for our county, that's about $20,000. You're like, oh, that's, that's a lot of money. I'm like, man, that's average <laughs> for, for our context for uh, average household before taxes. Praise God. Uh, so he gives each of his servants about $20,000, three months wages. Verse number 14, he says, but his citizens, oh, verse 13, he called his servants, he gave them each a mina. He said to them, engage in business until I come. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, we don't know why his citizens hated him, why the ruler of this country. Again, we can kind of hearken back to the sons of Herod the Great, uh, but we know that his sons hated him. Verse number 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So in other words, he says, hey, I'm going to leave for a while. I want you to steward your resources, steward what you have. And when I come back, I want to know how you've invested these things. Stewardship, good. We are all investing our lives in something. We're all investing in something. Again, big picture of this parable is Jesus, he says, I, I'm going to in, inaugurate the kingdom. I'm going to start it with my death and my resurrection and my ascension. But then there's going to be a time when you're waiting for me to come back and the kingdom is going to be consummated. So somebody asked me this past week, how would you define the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever people are submitting to the power and to the reign of God. That's it. So is the kingdom here? Yes. Is the kingdom coming? Yes. That's why we call it the already, not yet. It's here and it's coming more fully. Jesus started the kingdom, but he has not finished the kingdom yet. It is here and it's on its way. So he says, I'm coming back. Steward your resources well. Verse number 16, the first man came before him and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more, which is a pretty good return on investment. He gave him $20,000. He comes back with 200,000 more dollars. That'd be really nice. That'd be like investing uh, in Uber. Yeah, you know, uh, before the pandemic, something like that. It's like, um, I don't want to go get in a vehicle with somebody that I don't know. That's strange. I don't think I want to invest in a company like that. But if you had, you'd probably be really rich today. He says uh, in verse number 17, he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities now, notice the generosity of the master here, who is Jesus. He says, you get uh, ownership of these 10 cities. 
And to the second he came, in verse number 18, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. And then notice in verse number 20, we have this third guy. We don't have a story of every single one of his servants, just these three. Again, it's a parable. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Notice what he says here. Notice the terrible theology that he says. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, for some of us, you say, why did he not invest that mina? Because for us, we want to invest in so many things. Consider a 401k, for example. You don't take money and put it in a jar and put it under your mattress, hopefully, and save it for your retirement. You'll end up with some good money. But ideally, you won't compound interest on that. You want a good return on your investment. That way you put a little bit of money away every single week, every single month, every single year, and it begins to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then when you're ready to retire, you take that money and you cash it out. That's investing wisely. That's not what this person did because this third servant was, was, had a great fear of failure. He says, here's your mina back. I didn't do anything with it because I was scared. Why was he scared? Because you're a severe man. Because you take what you did not deposit. In other words, what he's saying is, you, you gave us these minas, but then you're going to take them back. And then whatever money we invested, you're going to take that money from me too? You sound like a really bad guy. Is that what the master did here? Did he take those investments back? Or did he say, you know what? Because you invested well, I'm going to make you ruler over 10 cities. I'm going to make you ruler over five cities. So notice this man. He's speaking really bad theology. He, he doesn't understand the master at all. F friends, when we consider this parable for the sake of our lives, if you do not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ today, if your view of God is one where you think that he wants to take from you, that he wants a, a lesser life for you than what this world has to offer, if you are not submitting to his lordship Today, you will not receive his inheritance forever. And if you're like, yeah, I really want his inheritance, but I don't want to submit to him. Can I tell you, if you do not submit to him in this life, you would not like heaven anyway. Because in heaven, he is the king who rules in peace. It is his kingdom that he provides for us. And he rules sovereign. Does he have sovereignty today? over your family, over where you live, over the money that you make, over where you're going to spend your retirement? Does he have sovereignty over what you watch, over the way that you spend your time? Is he sovereign over those things today in your life? Because if he's not, then you may be like the third servant here, who Christ has provided all of these resources for you to invest for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his glory, and he's going to pour out even more on you. And you're like, eh, I don't know. What if I were to read my Bible a little more? I don't, I don't know. I don't, want to, I don't want too much Jesus. That might be bad. You're like, that, that sounds crazy. It does sound crazy. That's really bad theology. Notice. Verse number 25. Uh, well, Jesus responds in, in verse number 23. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, so he says, you could have at least put it in the bank. Make a little bit in a money market account. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Pretty harsh. Jesus says in 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you are wasting your life and his resources, why would he give you more? Why would he give you more? God, please give me this. Please, please provide this. Can I ask you this too? Of all the blessings that are in your life, where do those blessings come from? Like, man, I'm, I'm blessed to work at home so I don't have to engage with people. I'm blessed to go on multiple vacations. I'm blessed to have all this money. Are those things actually from our king or are they from the enemy? 
Could those things be provided to you, not from Christ, but from your own efforts, for the sake of blinding you to the things of this kingdom? Because if you are not investing those things and using them well, I would ask you first, where are those blessings coming from? And secondly, what sort of return are you receiving on those blessings, on what Christ has given you? Why would Christ want to give you more? You're like, yeah, it's just about my heart, though. I, I, don't, I don't sing because Jesus knows my heart. I don't give money to the church because Jesus knows my heart. I don't evangelize the lost because Jesus knows my heart. Jesus is in my heart. Me and God, we're good. We're solid. I'm going to show up every now and then. I'm not going to be super religious, but I will be, you know, sort of religious. I'll be a little religious. And just kept... Can I tell you that Jesus is not simply concerned with your heart. He's concerned with your life. And he wants your life to matter in eternity. Jesus blesses faithfulness. The faithfulness that we extend with our hands. Verse number 27, the last verse here that we're going to look at. But as for these enemies of mine, by the way, the one who was a servant, who claimed to be a servant, he took everything away, and then Jesus says he, puts, he lumps them in with the enemies. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And then it's just done. It's pretty wild. Here's what we see here is that Jesus rewards the faithful. He rewards our faithfulness. He blesses our faithfulness with more and more in this life and in the next. And then Jesus condemns those who are wicked. You're like, this is, this is really harsh. But this picture of when Christ returns, and for those who have not been faithful, there is judgment waiting on them. May we wait well. This is a warning. And for some of us, we're like, man, this is, this is kind of nerve-wracking. Am, am I being faithful enough? Am I doing enough? We are to give and we are to, to go to the point of sacrifice, to the point of not just generosity, but above and beyond. If we're doing that, we're going to be at peace with Christ. So if we're in, in anxiety, man, am I doing, am I, no, no, no. No, man, run back and look at the finished work of Christ and then live out of that generosity. Because this right here, this warning verse in verse number 27, this is, mean, this is meant to be a warning. This is meant to say, wake up, examine your life. Be faithful, don't be selfish. What is Christ when he returns, or if you were to die and go before him today, what is he going to say about your obedience? What is Christ going to say about your obedience? Because each one of these folks, they just had one mina. The master here passes out 10 minas, you know, three months wages, which if anybody wants to invest a mina in, in my bank account, I would love it. <laughs> it. It'd be amazing. I'm not arguing against it. But for us, in the spiritual nature of this, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We don't just have some physical things that we're able to invest and do well with those. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. We've been given each other as the body of Christ. We've been given the power of God to fight sin, to fight for the lost, to go and proclaim. We've been guaranteed these blessings. Are we waiting well in this already not yet? How will we steward the things that we have been given? Are we stewarding them for the kingdom or not? Those are the only two options. You see, these folks, they wanted a king who would rule, but they only wanted a king who would implement and provide their preferences. That's it. So why did you, why have you put your faith in Jesus? Is it for you to have a better life or is it for you to submit to his lordship? The other thing I would ask for us this morning I hear this so often, but what is it that you think you need in order to be faithful? What is it that you think you need in order to be faithful? Is it some sort of healing in your family? Is it a better husband? Is it to have your wife back? Is it to be married? 
Is it to have kids? Is it to be done with school? Is it to have a solution to a problem? What is it that you need in order to be faithful? Because, friend, this morning, by faith, you've been made a citizen of the kingdom. And the love of God has been extended to you. The only barrier to your faithfulness The only barrier to your faithfulness is you not engaging the love of God. That is the only barrier to your faithfulness. Because as we live in this already not yet, we can go back and we can look at Genesis chapter 3. We can look at the nation of Israel. Even in Genesis chapter 3, we were talking about this past week in life group, they're in this already not yet. Because in the garden... God was not walking with them at the moment of temptation, right? The father was going to be walking with them later that evening. They saw him the day before. They may have even seen him that morning. They had seen him already. They knew that he was going to come back that evening. And in that intermediary period, they couldn't fight sin. They said, you know what? We think this fruit is better than the presence of Jesus Christ. We, th- we think that this knowledge of good and evil is better than the love of God. We can look at the Israelites in the same way. We know that we've been redeemed. We can keep making these sacrifices, but we also want a king. We also want a nation. We also want power and privilege. The coming king is not going to be enough. And for us in this church age, we're still in this already not yet. Jesus Christ has arrived. He says he's coming back again. Is he sufficient for you? Or are you looking somewhere else? And I would plead with you to step into his presence and to live out of his love for you. Live out of that love. Will his love be enough? May we be a people who are citizens, who have experienced his love. May we be a people who are waiting well. May we wait well. May we strive.